people can do amazing things. Walk on the moon, contain a nuclear meltdown. And what do they have in common? They're not in it alone. Creativity, talent, genius, it's all a team sport. We have seen what we thought was unseeable. It was a step in a direction that nobody had taken before. I'm Gabriella Cowperthwaite, host of Teamistry. It's an original podcast from Atlassian, all about the chemistry of teams. Check it out on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by longtime healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated, and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Hello and welcome. The Olympics is finally upon us and whew, it's going to be pretty hot out there. So this week we're exploring the many ways in which humans and machines can be built to handle the heat. Plus, which country tops the chart when it comes to height? Also, we'll hear how tomatoes hold the key to fending off a deadly parasite. I'm Connie Orbeck. I'm Chris Smith. And this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. As the US declares its first homegrown cases of Zika in Florida, we've learned that up to 90 million people, including over one and a half million childbearing women, may be infected across the Americas as the initial wave of the Zika epidemic unfolds. From the University of Southampton, Andy Tatum. Back in February, WHO declared Zika as a public health emergency, but there were no real estimates at the time of the scale of the problem. And that's useful for decision makers, for planning surveillance, for working out outbreak response, for working out what the demands might be on their, their health services. Normally, to do, produce these kind of estimates, you would make use of data that's coming as the epidemic is going on. But often using those traditional approaches and using that data, the damage can be done because the epidemic is ongoing. So we leveraged data and relationships from previous epidemics that have been spread by the same mosquito viruses such as dengue and chikungunya. We know that they have relationships with things like temperature that we can utilize to be able to make predictions um, across the region that we're interested in, which is the Americas in this case. And because these viruses are inhabiting the same territory, they're spread by the same mosquito vector, the same factors that influence the spread of those viral relatives will probably impact on the spread of Zika. And that means you can then make more realistic predictions about where it might go and over what sort of time frame. Yes, certainly. We're assuming that Zika will be spread in a similar fashion. We know it's spread by the mosquito that has spread previous similar viruses. So we can make those assumptions at the start of the epidemic. Obviously, as the epidemic goes on, we will have more data on Zika itself and see any differences that exist. But in the, the rapid spread of this virus, we need answers quite quickly to ascertain the, the size of the epidemic and be able to react. The numbers which were being put forward 
at the time when the WHO made its announcement and subsequently have been really rather large. We've been talking about millions of potential cases or, or exposed individuals. What does your approach suggest? Are those numbers reasonable? Our estimates are uh, of the scale of uh, 93 million people across the first wave of the epidemic over two to three years. And of those 93 million infections, we're estimating around 1.6 million childbearing women. And where are these 93 million people? They are spread across the Americas. And we were making predictions at five by five kilometre grid cells. So we are making really upper limit predictions of if the virus made it to that location, what was the kind of upper limit that you would expect in an epidemic? Where are the hotspots? The hotspots are really um, around Brazil. It has suitable climate. We know it has high densities of the Aedes aegypti mosquito that spreads Zika. Um, it's also in some of the Caribbean islands, and there's been good evidence of big outbreaks of these kind of viruses on small islands before. And if we extrapolate the numbers of infections that you're seeing, what are the implications for what people seem to be, rightly so, most worried about with this virus, which is its impact on women who are pregnant? Um, I I think there's still a lot of uncertainty there in terms of um, the relationship um, between getting an infection and birth defects. Um, We are estimating here around one and a half million uh, women giving birth um, who may be infected. Um, There's a range of estimates of proportion of those that might give birth to uh, birth defects. And those numbers have been quite widely varying and very small samples at present. So I think as the epidemic goes on, we'll know a lot more about that. And what's your thoughts on the situation in Brazil, given that we're about to start the world's most important sporting event there? and something like half a million to a million people will come to Brazil to support and compete. I think there is a need to be vigilant to improve and keep up surveillance. There's obviously a need for mosquito control in some of the most visited and um, highest mosquito density areas. Um, And I think there's still a lot of uncertainty. um, Obviously, there, there is a worry about people coming from all over the world taking not only Zika back, but other diseases and spreading those across the Americas. And at least now we have some estimates of if that virus is taken to new locations, what might be the scale of the local epidemics that occur. Because, of course, the data you're using in order to make your predictions is based on things like dengue virus, but it's based on the natural cycle of dengue, not when there's an Olympics going on, isn't there? So then might there be a bit of a change to the outcome because of the Olympics? Yes. I mean, we don't uh, account for uh, human movement here. We are estimating if the virus were to get into a location, what might be the scale of that epidemic? If we have good information on the number of people who are moving between locations, we have good data on how that's connected to other parts of the world in terms of numbers of people coming from different countries, we can then extend to make estimates of how that virus might spread to new locations and and not only Zika again, but other diseases. I'm sure we'll be returning to that subject again. That was Andy Tatum, and his study just came out in Nature Microbiology. And staying with the Olympics, the headlines have been hogged by Russia narrowly avoiding a blanket ban after several athletes were found to have taken performance-enhancing drugs. But how do organisations like WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency, test for these substances? 
Georgia Mills spoke with Kerry Parker, who's the editor-in-chief of the website Select Science. She's recently been to see the testing labs in Rio. You'll go into, you know, several rooms. Firstly, where they bring in the samples. So what happens is urine or blood samples are collected from athletes, you know, in the field. They're couriered in. They're given unique codes so nobody in the laboratory can actually know which athlete has which sample. And then those samples are processed. There's a, an A and B sample. So the A sample is processed and the B sample is always kept closed. That's a secondary sample that's only opened in the future if there needs to be some retesting. So what happens next is the samples are processed and they go through different types of analytical procedures. And essentially what they're doing is they're looking for banned substances or substances that look like those banned substances. They're also looking at unusual uh, metabolomics or unusual results in the tests as well. The Rio laboratory I just visited recently was absolutely amazing. They had a huge room full of instruments and it's a very unusual kind of setup compared to any other kind of laboratory you'll find anywhere in the world. They're going to be processing over 6,000 samples in about three weeks over the Olympics. That's about 300 to 400 a day and they have to get those results out within 24 hours. Years of preparation go into setting up the equipment, training staff to run a 24-hour lab. In terms of actually testing for these substances, what do they do? Do they sort of run it in a machine or look at it under the microscope? Generally, they're doing analytical tests. They're looking for particular compounds in, say, a blood or urine sample. You might use a science called chromatography and, and mass spectrometry. This will help firstly separate molecules in um, a sample like urine. And then once those molecules are separated, that science will be able to identify what those molecules are by their weight. It's a very, very accurate type of science. And from that report, the scientists can see if particular molecules are present or not in that sample at a very, very low level of detection. And so what's really interesting about this whole world of doping is those athletes that do decide to dope, they may be utilising new designer drugs or substances every year. So part of the work of this laboratory is not just to look at what's been banned, but also look at, hmm, are there any other new drugs that are being utilised at this time? There seems to be a lot in the news about doping, especially recently, I guess, with the Olympics coming up. But is it going up? I don't know that we can say that. All we can say is that the, the, the level of detection is increasing. The scientists can detect at a much better level. And they can also now look forward and, and look back as well. So um, I think the science is absolutely there and the detection is there. Perhaps that's why we're hearing it more in the news. And, and obviously around the Olympics, these stories are always really important. And um, we mustn't forget that athletes are tested all the time. Actually, it's not just around these games. They're often tested in between competitions as well. Many of them have um, what's known as a, an athlete biological passport. So they're collecting data and recording their data over time as well. So I think when the Olympics comes around, it's a topic everyone's interested in. But it's something that's, that's happening in the background all the time in athletics and sport. Georgia Mills speaking to Kerry Parker from the website Select Science. <laughs> 
Greyer here from Naked Astronomy. I wanted to say hey and tell you about my new podcast. It's an awesome audio adventure into the big black cosmos that we inhabit. What's out there? How did it all begin? And what will happen in the end? Presented and produced by yours truly, you can find it on most podcasting platforms. Just search Naked Astronomy. This is The Naked Scientist. I'm Connie Orbach and he's Chris Smith. Still to come, why a probe coated in animal bones will soon be en route to the sun. But before that, it's time for this week's Myth Conception, which Katani has been busy researching down the pub. Although, maybe not. If you're from an Asian background, or if you've ever been out boozing with Asians, you've probably heard of Asian glow, and maybe even seen it in action. It's the flushed red face that some people get when they drink alcohol, along with other effects such as a fast heartbeat and a raised temperature after just one or two drinks. This isn't just restricted to Asians, but it is much more common in people from places such as Japan, China and Korea, affecting up to a third of the population there. As a result, many people think that Asian glow is due to a genetic inability to break down alcohol. But in fact, this is a myth. Or at least, the truth is a bit more complicated. Let's um, break it down further. When you drink alcohol, whether it's in beer, wine or spirits, it gets broken down in the body, with the products ultimately ending up being used for energy or stored as fat. Well, it's not called a beer belly for nothing. The enzyme that starts the breakdown process is called alcohol dehydrogenase, or ADH. What it does is removes an atom of hydrogen from the chemical structure of ethanol. That's the scientific name for the alcohol we drink. This leaves a related chemical called acetaldehyde, and it's here where things get nasty. Ethanol itself isn't really that bad for your body, apart from the health risks of excessive drunkenness, including accidents and other risky behaviour. But acetaldehyde is relatively toxic and can have several negative effects on the body, including the unpleasant symptoms of a horrendous hangover the day after, as well as dilating blood vessels in the skin and leading to that famous Asian glow while drinking. Because of this toxicity, there's another enzyme called aldehyde dehydrogenase, ALDH. Somewhat confusingly, this actually adds an oxygen atom back on to the acetaldehyde, creating acetic acid. That's the main component of vinegar, and it's a chemical that our bodies can easily use for making energy. If you imagine the body to be a bit like a funnel, alcohol comes in the top, alcohol dehydrogenase breaks it down into acetaldehyde, which is toxic, and aldehyde dehydrogenase gets rid of that by turning it into acetic acid. If both these enzymes are working properly and you don't overload the system with too much booze, then you can easily deal with a couple of drinks. But rather than having a problem with the first step of the process, breaking down ethanol, people who experience the Asian glow, or alcohol flush reaction as it's more formally known, have a genetic variation that means their aldehyde dehydrogenase is either ineffective or less efficient. So acetaldehyde quickly builds up causing the rosy cheeks. There's another part to this story too. Many Asian people actually have more efficient versions of the first enzyme in the chain, alcohol dehydrogenase, which means that they make acetaldehyde relatively quickly as soon as the first glass of booze hits them. But more than just being a bit embarrassing and rosy-cheeked, the genetic change in aldehyde dehydrogenase can have serious health effects. 
The genetic change has been associated with an increased risk of certain types of cancer, particularly cancer of the esophagus or food pipe, due to higher levels of acetaldehyde that can cause damage to cells and DNA. Unfortunately, there aren't really any good ways to counteract this, and the best advice is just to cut down on booze. Finally, there are some bodily effects of alcohol that you can't blame on your genes at all. And that's the bad drunken dancing. Anyone for the Macarena? Well, if it's all the same cat, I think I might sit that one out. Meanwhile, if you have a potential myth conception that you would like us to look into for you, then do please send it in to chris at thenakedscientist.com and we'll gladly take a look. A parasitic plant that devastates crops in some parts of the world may now have finally met its match thanks to the household tomato. Cuscuta reflexa, which is the name of the parasite, invades the stems of its hosts and it steals water and nutrients. This damages the yield and it also leaves the victim plant susceptible to infection by other plant pathogens. But, by chance, tomato plants have naturally evolved a mechanism to detect the parasite and, when it tries to invade, they kill it. Marcus Alberts, who made the discovery, has now uncovered how tomato plants do this and he thinks it might be possible to endow other crop plants with the same defence system. This is a plant, but it's also a parasite which attacks other plant. This plant has no roots, it has no leaves, so it requires nutrients from other plants. It grows inside the stem of another plant and then it starts to withdraw water nutrients and also carbohydrates. What does the parasite look like then, this parasitic plant, before it gets inside the host plant? So the parasite is a winding plant and it winds around stems of host plants before uh, it starts to penetrate. It has a special organ called haustorium, kind of a root that grows inside the host plant. And then it connects directly to the tissue where water flows. So it makes a continuous tube from the host to the parasite and the parasite is getting everything out. What sort of impact worldwide does this class of parasite have on plants that that we judge to be important crop plants, for example? In southern Asia, it's a very kind of dangerous plant in the soybean cultivation. Even for some tomatoes, it can be uh, very dangerous. So it decreases the crop yield tremendously. And also in coffee cultivation, it can be a really huge problem. The biggest problem, you cannot fend off this parasite by using herbicides, because otherwise you would also kill the host plants or the crop plants. How does it spread then? Does it make flowers at some point and set seed? It makes flowers and this flowering time is somehow synchronized with the host plant. These parasitic seeds, they can stay in the soil for for years. And are all plants, as far as we know, susceptible to this parasite? Or are there some that that have evolved to fend it off? Nearly all plants are susceptible for this Cuscuta species. But we noticed that the cultivated tomato is uh, resistant against this parasitic attack. And there we observed an active defense. The site where this parasitic penetration organ aims to penetrate the tomato stem, the surrounding tissue becomes kind of brownish. And what we then observed when we 
made a cut through the stem, this haustorium could not grow inside. And very important, about two weeks later, the parasite dies. So just by chance, it, it would appear the tomatoes that we grow because we love to eat them appear to have some kind of mechanism that can fend off this parasite. It, it stops it plugging into the vascular system of the plant. How did you then pursue that to work out how it's doing that? We also noticed that a wild tomato species was susceptible. Other peoples crossed the two tomato species and provided us a set of different tomato strains with a diverse genetic background. And these were all tested, and this helped us to further characterize and to identify important components. I get it. So by comparing a strain of plants that are susceptible to the parasite with a strain of plants that are not susceptible to the parasite, you can then ask, well, what are the differences between the two? Because the differences must hold the key to that resistance. And then you can begin to pick through and see what exactly is missing from the plant which is susceptible. And that, exactly. and that tells you. So what is it? How is the tomato plant fending off the parasite? We mapped a certain region of this tomato genome and we ended up with just one important component. And this is a kind of receptor mechanism. And this receptor could detect a molecular signature from this plant parasite. And then it works like a switch and starts a kind of signaling cascade that leads to this uh, defense. Would this tripwire system be amenable to being transferred to other plants that are currently susceptible to the parasite? So could you put the same machinery into soybeans, for example, so if the parasite tried to get in there, then the soybean would also be able to fend it off? So I think this is something important we aim to do. What we initially tried, we uh, transferred this machinery to two other plant species, and there we could see the resistance increasing against this parasite. And now it will be an important aim to transfer this also to important crop plants, for example, soybean or uh, some others. Food for thought, isn't it? That was Marcus Albert from the University of Tübingen in Germany, and he published that work in the journal Science. If you've been to the Netherlands lately, you might have noticed how tall many of the people there are, especially the men. That's because they're now the tallest nation in the world. But it wasn't always like this. The largest ever analysis of height measurements from nearly one and a half million people across the globe and spanning more than a century reveals how height has changed. Katani spoke to Imperial College's James Bentham, who was part of the team behind the study, to get the lowdown on the world's height over the past hundred years. So the tallest people were in uh, Scandinavia, they were in the USA, Canada, Australia and so on, and also some Pacific Islands. The shortest people were in parts of Central America, they're in the Middle East, in Southeast Asia. The average height of men was around uh, five seven in the tallest countries. The average height of uh, women was much uh, shorter. And now, how has that changed? Again, where are the tallies and where are the shorties and how much have they grown? The tallest people now are in Europe. So 
So the top 10 countries for both men and women are European countries. On the other hand, the countries that have grown um, are spread around the world. So the countries that have grown the most are in East Asia. So Japan and South Korea have grown particularly dramatically. Iranian men are much taller. And then there's been a lot of growth in uh, Southern Europe as well. So this hasn't been across the board, the whole world is getting taller. There are unevennesses. There are big unevennesses, yes. So every country in the world has grown taller, but some have only grown taller by um, a matter of a centimetre or so. Whereas other countries, for example, women in South Korea are eight inches taller than they were. Wow, I wish I could (laughs) could be eight inches taller. And are there any countries that are actually getting smaller? There are countries that are smaller than they were 30 years ago or 40 years or so. So they had a peak and now they're getting shorter again. Yes, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. We see this in uh, various countries there. They reached a peak and since then the height has declined by 5 to 10 centimetres. So, Majid, we've heard how the data has changed, how these trends have changed. Some countries have got taller and then plateaued. Some countries are getting much taller and some have got taller and then dropped off. What's behind these patterns of changes? We do know from decades of work in nutrition and in physiology that height is really a matter of nutrition, environment, and the care that they get. And in some sense, the changes, the improvements, and then the variations reflect better and worse social, nutritional, and environmental conditions during pregnancy, uh, in early childhood, and in adolescence. And they reflect that accumulation of that advantage versus adversity. As a geneticist, I know that there's a certain proportion of height that is in the genes and a certain proportion that's to do with environment. How does that balance out in different countries? Do we think that maybe some countries have better height genes than others? Sure. I mean, if we take a snapshot at one moment in one population, genes are hugely important. And again, some of the sort of best studies seem to show that, you know, 20, 30 percent is due to genes. But genes don't change very fast over time. It's really environment and it's a nutrition. And, um, you know, while there may be variations in genes between different countries, um, the belief is that its role is much smaller than differences in environment and nutrition. So if it does mostly boil down to nutrition, what kind of foods are important? So we should remember that nutrition isn't just about food. It's about the conditions in which a fetus grows, so the mother having a good environment and and, and good nutrition. And it's about maintaining the nutrition. Food does matter, and animal products, animal proteins, and dairy are quite helpful for growing taller. They include the the components and nutrients that helps with growth. But it should also be the case that those nutrients are maintained. So a child who lives in a home that doesn't have clean water and actually gets repeated repeats of diarrhea, they lose any nutrition that they would be getting or a child that doesn't have uh, you know, ready and, and high quality access to healthcare, so that they are treated when they get an infection, when they have an illness, uh, those things matter. Why is it important? Obviously, it's very interesting from a data nerdery point of view to look at height and see how things have changed and we can draw some cool graphs. But why does height matter? What, what does it reflect? Greater height is associated with longer longevity and better education and economic performance. So it's really the connection between early life conditions and later life health. For that reason, it says a lot about how a society thinks about its future.
So, James, just one final question. I am five feet tall, about 152 centimetres. Where in history would I have been tall? In 1914, you would have been tall in Guatemala because the average height of Guatemalan women then was four foot seven. And you'd still be taller than average there because the average height there is four foot eleven. So basically, I I need to move to Guatemala. Yes, essentially, that's the answer. Me too. And certainly not a tall story, was it? That's Imperial College's James Bentham and before him Majid Azati and their paper describing those findings was published this week in the journal eLife. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Connie Orbach and Chris Smith. If you've got any questions or comments, then why not tweet us at Naked Scientist, email chris at thenakedscientist.com or find us on Facebook. Now, moving on to the main part of the show, this week we're taking a look at how to handle the heat. From boosting the efficiency of jet engines to going for gold in the tropical Rio climate, our ability to cope in high temperatures can make the difference between falling or flying. And as we'll find out later, the challenge also reaches into outer space. But before that, we're journeying back in time to a massive mystery of heat technology. This torch here is producing a temperature of 1,200 degrees Celsius. Now try cooking an ordinary egg like that, and in a very few seconds, the results would be quite an explosion. But I'm going to leave this torch here blowing on this egg for a couple of minutes before we crack it open. And it ought to survive the inferno because it's coated with a remarkable new plastic. That was the BBC's Tomorrow's World programme on TV back in 1990. And that remarkable new plastic being demonstrated live was known as Starlight. This coating allegedly could withstand intense heat and it didn't catch fire and it didn't release toxins, making it a very attractive industrial proposition. In fact, the egg coated with it survived a full five minutes under the blowtorch flame. So how is it doing? Well, it hasn't broken up at all and you can see on the front here it's glowing red hot. But just watch this. If I turn the flame off and remember that it was producing 1,200 degrees Celsius and I take that charred bit and I put it flat in the palm of my hand, it only just feels warm. And if I then crack it open, what's more, the egg hasn't even begun to start cooking. Perhaps just as remarkable as Starlight's properties was the story behind it. It was created in the 1980s by former hairdresser Morris Ward. Ward's inspiration for such an invention followed an aircraft fire in which 55 people died through exposure to toxic fumes released inside the cabin. So, could he create a plastic which couldn't catch fire. He set about concocting different formulations using a food mixer at home. He eventually stumbled on a few recipes which passed formal tests at the chemical company ICI. But it wasn't until his appearance on Tomorrow's World that things really started to heat up. A series of tests by various government agencies was begun. They found Starlight to have little problem resisting nuclear blasts of 10,000 degrees Celsius and the force of 75 Hiroshima's. It was virtually unscathed when subjected to an intense laser beam. The scientific community was baffled. It wasn't clear how Starlight could do what no other material had done before. But what was clear was its potential. Coating something in a thin layer of Starlight could make it resistant to fire and radiation, while also providing remarkable thermal insulation. Rumoured bidders such as NASA and Boeing were eager to get their hands on a sample, but Ward had other ideas. He refused to let Starlight out of his sight, and he kept its recipe a closely guarded secret. 
All he would reveal was that it was made up of 21 organic polymers and copolymers and small quantities of ceramics. The true secret was apparently only held by Ward and some close family members. No, we don't supply you the formulation. If we give the world the formulation, that's exit us. All we're saying really is that I'm protecting my material and you ain't going to pinch it. Now, before he would give any company a licence to the material, Ward required them to sign an agreement promising not to reverse engineer it. Dozens of corporations never made it past the negotiation stage and enthusiasm for Starlight petered out. So what was the mystery behind the substance? Well, some say that Ward was being greedy and selfish. Others say he didn't want it to fall into the hands of defence companies. Or was it just a big hoax? Unfortunately, we're never going to know the answer because Ward passed away in 2011 and he took the secret of Starlight with him. It's never come to light. That's quite a story, isn't it? And despite Morris Ward's vision, sadly our aircraft cabins may never benefit from Starlight's fireproofing capabilities. But on the subject of air travel, handling extreme temperatures is something aeroplanes have to do every second that they're in the sky. Now that's because the inside of a jet engine reaches temperatures that are hotter than molten lava. These temperatures are also above the melting point of the metal turbine blades that make up the engine interior. These blades are forced to spin by the expanding hot exhaust gases that are travelling through the engine. They extract energy from that gas stream and they use it to drive the large fan that's visible on the front end of the engine. And this is what produces most of the thrust. Clever materials science and engineering is what keeps those blades from melting. Claire Armstrong has been discovering how. one time, there were a million people airborne all across the world. The Airbus A380, a double-decker, long-haul aeroplane, can weigh up to 590,000 kilograms when full of passengers, luggage and fuel. So how is it possible to lift up something so heavy and keep it floating in the sky? The answer lies in the aircraft's incredibly powerful engines. To find out more, I went to Derby to visit Rolls-Royce, one of the world's leading manufacturers of aircraft engines, and who had been manufacturing these engines for over 100 years. I was joined there by Neil D'Souza, who works with the blades which make up the engine. Firstly, I was curious to find out, how do these engines actually work? And effectively, what you do is you suck in air through the fan, you compress the air, that increases the pressure, increases the temperature and then you combust it with fuel from the combustion chamber. And then the hot gases that pass thereafter are at about 1600 degrees as they enter the turbine. They begin to expand, and the energy extracted from the gas stream then is used to drive the compressor, etc., and then you basically get the thrust. And the thrust is the most important part, which effectively keeps the aircraft flying. You mentioned 1600 degrees Celsius. How on earth can you manufacture turbine blades to deal with such extreme temperatures? The normal melting point of the nickel blade alloys that you use in the turbine is typically about 12 to 1400 degrees. But what you do, and this is the clever bit, is you actually cool these blades. You have internal cooling passages, which effectively has air that flows through, and it's about seven to 800 degrees. And this cooling air then exits from small little minute holes that have been drilled on the surface of the blade. And this air then forms a kind of a film on the surface of the blade. And this technology is typically called a film cooling. What you also do, you coat these blades. And 
typically use something called a thermal barrier coating. The thermal barrier coating effectively is ceramic, typically about a quarter of a millimeter in thickness, but they have got very, very low thermal conductivity. So effectively, even though the gas stream is at a much higher temperature, the effective metal that exists beneath the thermal barrier coating is much colder. And uh, you get thermal gradients of the order of about 100 degrees C between the hot and the cold surface. So that, so all of this put together, this whole cooling technology effectively helps to keep the blade below its melting temperature. So a combination of cooling channels and a thin ceramic coating helps to stop the blade from melting. But what about the blade material itself? Well, in such extreme conditions, you need to use a special type of alloy known as a super alloy. To find out a bit more about this intriguingly named material, I spoke to super alloy expert Professor Cathy Ray from the University of Cambridge. The turbine blades spinning inside the engine experience temperatures of over 1600 degrees centigrade and the stresses they experience are equivalent to having a large truck hanging on every blade. Pure metals are not very strong. Think of a 24-carat gold ring. It wouldn't be strong enough to hold the diamond. So we add silver and copper to make an alloy that makes it stronger. The different sized atoms disrupt the regular layers, making it more difficult for them to slide over one another. This is what happens when metals deform. Making alloys is rather like making a cake. You use the same ingredients, but you can get very different results depending on the proportions you have. But it also matters how you combine them. Think of crunchy biscuits or a soft sponge cake. Super alloys are pretty unique alloys in that their strength increases or holds steady as they get hotter. They're made up of up to 10 different elements. And although all of these are necessary to achieve the design properties, the essential ingredients are nickel, aluminium and chromium. Aluminium is a dream addition to nickel. It strengthens the alloy, it also gives it a protective coating, preventing it from reacting with the oxygen. And it also reduces the density, meaning that the stresses are lower as the blades rotate. Super alloys, cooling channels and ceramic coatings are key to keeping the blade cool. But how exactly do they use these technologies to make a blade? The answer lies in a process known as investment casting, whereby molten alloy is poured into a mould in the shape of the blade. Interestingly, the mould also has some special internal sections, which will eventually help to form the cooling channels as the alloy solidifies around them. Back at Rolls-Royce, I went into the casting section of the factory to see this process in action, and I was accompanied by some very loud vacuum pumps. When casting these nickel-based superalloys, they have to be molten. So once the alloy has solidified and the mould has been removed, the blades are heated up to about 1300 degrees Celsius. A heating step evenly distributes the variety of elements within the blade and makes sure it has uniform properties. After this step, the blades go through a variety of inspections to make sure there are no problems. They then leave the factory where they continue their production journey. It is at this stage that the thermal barrier coatings are added to the surface. To finish my visit, I went to see what happens when you put all of these blades together to make an engine. I'm currently standing next to a Trent 700 engine Uh, which is about, gosh, six feet by six feet by six feet. It's pretty big. Now there is a lot of pressure on engine manufacturers to make engines more efficient. What is Rolls-Royce doing to help meet these targets? So one of the uh, 
requirements to make an engine more efficient is to increase the turbine entry temperatures which obviously means you need to now have alloys which have got even higher temperature capability so there's work that's looking at such kind of alloys also looking at alternative materials like say ceramic matrix composites which are even higher melting which have got much better temperature capability but in all of this it's not just important to have materials with high temperature capabilities how can you actually manufacture them and the manufacturability of metals generally is a lot easier than making ceramics simply because metals are a lot tougher so it's it's quite a challenging scenario and lots of work is being focused on these alternative materials both metallic as well as non-metallic so there's truly a lot more to these engines than initially meets the eye and every day researchers are hard at work investigating the next generation of high temperature materials through clever material science and engineering, we can keep raising the operating temperatures of these jet engines to improve their efficiency and produce sustainable air travel in the future. Oh, hot stuff. That was Claire Armstrong reporting from Rolls-Royce's facility in Derby. To be able to grow, they need to be able to communicate with each other. And so the growth factors are really important because that's how the cells communicate to each other. In this month's Naked Genetics podcast, we're sifting the signal from the noise. How do molecular signals coordinate cells to build tissues, organs and babies? Plus, big data for big genetics and our gene of the month is going round in circles. Listen and download now at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and me, Connie Orbach. This week, we're looking at how things handle the heat. In a moment, we'll hear from an Olympic athlete how the human body does it. But first, the Solar Orbiter, a joint project between NASA and the European Space Agency to study the sun close up, is scheduled for launch in 2018. It will get nearer to the sun than we've ever been before. Airbus Defence and Space were awarded the contract to build the Solar Orbiter, and so they have quite a challenge on their hands protecting it from the sun's intense rays. Katie Hassel is a senior spacecraft thermal engineer with Airbus. Hi, Katie. So how close to the sun is this thing actually going and what kind of temperatures are we talking about? Solar Orbiter, as part of its mission, will be going to a third of the distance from the sun to the Earth, so the close third to the sun. That's just inside Venus's orbit. And what sort of temperatures is that then? So that's a lot a lot closer than we are. Yeah, so um, it has a really big heat shield on the very front of the spacecraft and the front of that heat shield will see around 600 degrees. As an idea, if you've ever left a bar of chocolate in your pocket for a bit too long, it will do that to aluminium. That's the front, but the back must be quite a different temperature. So the idea with the heat shield is that it works a little bit like a parasol in the sense it provides a shadow for the whole of the spacecraft. And so everything behind that heat shield is going to be cold and it can see dark space, which we model that as around minus 270 degrees. So the spacecraft itself could get down to temperature about minus 180. Wow, that's a really huge range. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm guessing if we've not got the atmosphere of the Earth, then I'm guessing there's a radiation issue as well. So radiation is an issue, particularly for solar orbiter, because it's going so close to the sun, it does mean there's going to be a lot of charged particles in the environment that it's going to be in. When you're thinking about these problems, this huge range in temperature, lots of radiation, how do you go about choosing the materials to make the solar orbiter from to deal with these conditions? 
we have a good idea of how certain materials behave. We know radiation is going to be an issue, which then starts to narrow down what type of materials we can use. So for solar orbiter, we're looking for anything that is electrically conductive. So anything that isn't electrically conductive is something that we then basically we remove that from the options. It's not available to us. So why do they have to be electrically conductive? That's these charged particles. We don't want static to build up on any part of the spacecraft because otherwise we could end up with electrostatic discharge. It's like little lightning across the whole spacecraft and that can damage the instruments. And so what about the other the other problems, the other materials? After that, it becomes quite a lot of a thermal issue. What we're looking to do there is maintain the temperature of the spacecraft. Ideally, from a thermal point of view, it would have been lovely if the spacecraft could have been white. However, we couldn't find a white material that was going to maintain its whiteness during the lifetime of the mission. So we're actually going to be using black. By doing that, it means that we can understand a lot more how the colour of the spacecraft is going to change over its lifetime. And the idea is we try and maintain a particular type of colour so that we're controlling the heat flow. So from the sun, around the spacecraft and then out to space. So you kind of know what's going to happen right from the beginning as opposed to... That's the general idea. Okay, what are the materials then? What sort of things are you using? Inside that shadow cone, we've got thermal blankets on there. They're a little bit like what you might see marathon runners being wrapped up in, but lots of layers of those. They're made out of aluminium foils. And again, they've got a black coating on the outside of those. And then the heat shield that I've already mentioned, that has a special paint on the very front of it that it just so happens is made out of burnt animal bones. Ooh. Well, that's quite surprising. <laughs> kind of a random one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a load of burnt animal bones going up into space. Yep. Surely there's lots of things you could make which would do the job. We've asked for a black paint that can meet all of our requirements and it just so happens that the black paint that has come back to us that can maintain all of that electrostatic discharge, that can maintain its colour and isn't going to fall off once it's all painted on there, it's made out of charred animal bones. Okay, so basically this is kind of a big box and it's got this big square sun shield in front of it which isn't made of aluminium. What's it made of? It's made out of titanium. Okay, made of titanium covered in this black paint made of of all things crushed animal bones so how do you know it's actually going to work good question during the whole development of the mission we do a lot of analysis and then what we do is we build it and we put it in what's called a solar simulation chamber and that is essentially a really big box that has a xenon light bulb and the xenon light bulb is to simulate all of the different wavelengths that the sun emits its light in and we put our spacecraft in there and then we see how the spacecraft reacts to that sunlight. So that xenon light bulb is like a mini sun? It's a mini sun, yeah. Oh wow, and that's just looking at it right in the here and now. I'm guessing you have to then do some sort of analysis on this. Yeah, we do more analysis at that point. So we make a model of the test chamber and what we do is we make sure that the temperatures on the model match what we're getting out of the test chamber and then we run lots of simulations to model the different types of environments that the spacecraft's going to be in during its mission lifetime. And how long is that mission lifetime? How long is it going, is it going out there for? It works out as around nine years. It's got three years where it's actually going to get to the sun. And then we've got three years where it's doing the science. And then all being well, it'll have a further three years of doing even more science. Wow, that's a lot of computer programming you've got to do. That's Katie Hassel from Airbus. Thank you very much.
Fascinating stuff. Now, back here on Earth, it's Olympic season, of course, but how are athletes from cooler countries, and by that I mean less thermally challenged, going to cope with these Brazilian temperatures? It may be winter south of the equator, but temperatures are still predicted to reach 26 degrees Celsius in the afternoons. How is this going to affect the competitors, and what do their bodies do to keep cool? Well, Dan Gordon is an exercise physiologist, but he is also uniquely an athlete himself. He's represented Great Britain in three sports in the past, and he holds a world record. Dan, what is it? What is the world record? The world record is in track cycling. I still hold the outdoor world record for a kilometre time So you must know all about handling the heat. So why is thermal situations a challenge for people out there in situations like this? Yeah, it's an important question. I mean, the biggest challenge to bodies functioning is, is heat. If you think about muscle changing length and therefore generating force, 75% of the energy that's produced is lost in the form of heat. So we're producing vast amounts of heat, and then we put somebody into a hot environment, it really puts the body into a state of enormous compromise when you're trying to compete, and you're trying to generate very fast and rapid muscle contractions. So it's not just dealing with uh, actually having very good musculature and being highly trained, it's also being able to cope with the thermal stress of how to dump enough heat back into the environment to keep your body running efficiently in these situations. Exactly. And that's the key to success. If you imagine you go to an Olympic Games and most of the athletes are of a fairly similar standard. If you take the top 10 in the world, they're a fairly similar standard. So one of the big factors that really determines the the winner from the loser is the person who can cope with the heat and dissipate the heat the most effectively. But can you train that, Dan? You can. I mean, you can train it in a number of ways. One of the ways is you can use what's called acclimation. So acclimation is where we put athletes or individuals into heat chambers. And in the heat chamber, you can expose them to the temperature you're going to get in the local environment. And the body will physically adapt. Or you can acclimatise somebody where you actually go to the hot environment and you're there for a number of days prior to whatever the competition is going to be. And what sorts of changes or adaptations does the body make to your physiology in order to enable you to become more efficient at losing or controlling thermal stress? Okay, now this is the really cool bit. If you or go not, into, <laughs> Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you go into a hot environment, the first thing that actually happens is that you get an increase in the skin colour. The skin goes quite red. And the reason for that is, is that the, the circulation is being redirected to the skin. The blood has a fantastic capability of dissipating heat from the body. So it's taking it from the core and dissipating it away from the body. So we get a redistribution of blood flow. In most holidaymakers' case, that's just because of the local vino. But uh, we'll, we'll assume these Possibly. athletes are not and, and, and in my, my case, it's just natural sunburn. So you bring the but, blood close to the surface of the skin and because the blood is hot, you've got a hot thing close to the skin surface that's going to radiate It's heat. going to radiate the heat away from the body. But that's quite an inefficient process because you're now redistributing the blood away and there's only a finite amount of blood and, of course, the blood carries the oxygen and, and we have this compromise. So what we know because is... it's not going to the muscles. It's not going to the muscles and it's being redistributed away from other organs. So what... What happens is over time, as you start to expose somebody to the environment, and this is the bit that I think throws people is you start to sweat more. Sweating is actually, we often think that's kind of a bad response. Actually, it's a fantastic response because sweating is a far more efficient process in terms of that redistribution of blood flow. So the redistribution of blood flow is downregulated. So you can train yourself to you, sweat more. You can train yourself to sweat more. How? Well, you do it by exposing people to those hot conditions. And the but more do you get more sweat glands? You don't get more sweat glands. It's just that the body learns through that exposure to not get the redistribution of blood flow. 
and then therefore promote the sweat oh, response. So you're substituting sweating for, for rushing blood to correct, the skin surface. Correct. So how much can someone sweat? Well, I mean, it really does depend. But I mean, you can see athletes losing, and we're talking litres. But you also get individuals who don't sweat a lot. There are a lot of athletes in Athens who are, we called them dry sweaters. They really didn't look like they were losing much. But then you have a lot of athletes who, who, who sweat vast amounts. So it's very individual even in people who are acclimatised to the, to the conditions. And how long will it take? Say you took me as a relatively untrained, at least in warm temperatures, individual, and took me to Rio. What would you do to me in order to get me as acclimatised as I could be to cope with those temperatures and boost my sweat rate? OK, so the key is, is making the most of the time. So in a normal situation, it takes about 10 days to acclimatise to, to anything about 26 to 35, 36 degrees C, about 10 days. We can speed that process up by doing acclimation prior to the event. So if we're doing acclimation every day for an hour to two hours a day, we could probably reduce the acclimatisation period down to about eight days. Okay. Now, is there evidence that people who grow up in these countries, so if, I'm, if I am from Ethiopia, I'm very good at marathon running, not just because I've got good ways of extracting oxygen from my muscles, but because I've evolved to have very good, very strict temperature control. Is, is that the case as that well? That is the case as well. So, you know, unfortunately, the UK athletes had their time with London. We did well with London. It was a natural environment. We're now at a natural disadvantage. You know, it's no doubt that the Kenyans, the Moroccans, the Ethiopians are at that advantage, A, because they, they've got, as you say, great ability in terms of exercising and competing, but they've got that natural ability to, to dissipate heat and, and really good sweaters. Well, they said team always plays best at home, don't they? It's certainly true in that case. Very much. I, I've always joked that the Olympics is more a trial of genes and genetics than it is really about anything else. Would you agree with that? I mean, it is basically your genetics against someone else's, isn't it? It is in the end, isn't it? And I mean, it's no doubt that's what it comes down to. And if you look at a bell curve, and we're right at the far extreme of the bell curve. You're at the extreme of that extreme. And it, it really is about these extraordinarily genetic specimens. And, and it's a massive, massive component in terms of everything that's going on. Dan Gordon from Anglia Ruskin. Thank you very much. Thank you also to Katie Hassel and also to Rolls-Royce, who gave us access to their precision casting facility. And now it's time for Question of the Week. Luchka Bibic has been unwrapping Tony's question. The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education from Alpha to Omega. If we can slice the earth in half and leave the inner and outer core intact, like cutting the avocado, what would it look like from space? For a glimpse of what an earth might be like from space, we turn to earth expert Dr. Marion Holness from University of Cambridge. Well, the Earth is about 6,400 kilometres in radius. The crust, which is the bit we walk on and that we know most about, ranges from about 10 kilometres thick to about 70 kilometres thick. So that's absolutely nothing, really. So if we go further down, we come to the mantle, which goes all the way down to about 3,000 kilometres depth below the surface. And that's predominantly made of silicate minerals, um, magnesium iron silicates. In the shallowest part of the mantle, that is dominated by a mineral called olivine. And perhaps paradoxically, when you look at all these textbook pictures with that slice through the earth, the mantle was always shown as red, presumably because it's hot. But actually, the mineral olivine is green. So if it had cooled down, we'd see from space this great mass of green rock. Life underneath the Earth's mantle is actually green then. What can we see if we dig even deeper into the Earth's core? If we go further down still, we get to the core, and the core is made predominantly of iron and nickel. 
And it's, since it's been cooling down um, ever since the Earth was formed, the centre of the core is actually solid now. It's, it's crystallised. So we've got this inner core that's solid and then the outer core, which is convecting. All right, then. But how did you figure out what is actually going on over 6,000 kilometres underneath the ground? We can find out how heavy the Earth is and we know how big it is. So we can look at the rocks on the surface and we know that what their density is and we know that there must be something much, much denser in the centre of the Earth to make the Earth as heavy as it actually is for its size. So the next thing we do is look at meteorites that are coming to the Earth's surface. And a lot of those meteorites that come are made purely of iron. So we can say, oh yeah, we've got all these bits of iron coming down from the sky. So it's likely that what we've got in the centre of our Earth is something very much like this. Now how big is it? The question can be answered by listening to the Earth. So when the Earth um, has experiences an earthquake, it rings like a bell. And it sends seismic waves all the way through the Earth. And we can pick up those seismic waves using seismometers scattered all the way through the Earth. And we can tell how fast the waves are moving through the Earth and what type they are. So we can just piece it together from observations of meteorites and by listening to the Earth. So if we would slice the Earth as we slice an avocado and see it from outer space, what would we see then? We'd see this thinnest of thin skins, which is the crust. And then we'd see this mass of green mantle. And then in the centre, we'd get this beautiful, shiny, metallic core. Thanks, Marion, for explaining to us how Earth shows us its true colours. Next week, we will be answering Robert's question. Is it possible to unlearn what we have already learned? Sometimes we really need, do need to knock things down before we can build them back up again. If anyone wants to venture a guess about this one, then you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com, find us on Facebook, tweet at Naked Scientist, or join in the debate on the forum, thenakedscientist.com slash forum. And that is it for this week. Thank you very much to Claire Armstrong for putting the programme together. And do join us next week for our Q&A show, when our team of brainiacs from across the field of science will be putting themselves through their paces to answer your science questions. If you fancy giving them a challenge, do drop us a line with your thoughts to chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and it's supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. Until next time, thanks for listening and goodbye. <laughs>